Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. I'm Ronnie. I'm a member here at GCC, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you the first sermon of the year. Um, We're going to be continuing where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians 3.23, the very last verse. We're jumping into chapter 4, just looking at the very first seven verses in chapter 4, 1 through 7. So if you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab one of the ones around the room as, uh, as we get ready. And if you, don't, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, that's actually a gift from GCC to you. If you're visiting, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hopefully this is a safe place to come and investigate the claims of Christianity our, our aim and goal here, we say every week, as Mark even said before in going through the announcements, is always to make Jesus the hero. That's always the center of every message and at the heart of everything we do here at Gospel Community Church. We seek to live that out practically and communicate it consistently. Actually, what's a funny story about that earlier this week, I actually went for a run, and it was actually kind of a depressing run because I was... I was sitting there kind of thinking of my sin, my failures in life and everything, just it's kind of a long run, and some failures even that week, and I, I came home all, all sweaty and gross, and Nicole's sitting there holding our, our newborn, getting ready to make dinner, uh, just kind of waiting for me to go upstairs, take a shower, and come back downstairs and help her out so she can start cooking dinner. And I, I just started confessing some stuff to her, and I was like, I'm sorry, and she's like, yeah, I forgive you. And we just looked at each other quietly, and I go, I'm not the hero. And she says, I know, but can you go take a shower and get down here so you can at least be helpful? (laughs) This is a joke. She was kidding. She was kidding, of course, but um, it's true. In in, in every way, I mentioned this last week, I'm not Nicole's hero. She's not looking to me to fulfill all of her hopes and dreams. I'm not looking to her for everything or any person, but constantly looking to Jesus to be the hero of my life, and that's what I hope we consistently communicate here every week. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 through 7, I will read the verse, verses, and then we'll dive in. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time and the space to come together to worship you, to dive into what you've, you've given us. I pray that as we examine this text, we understand what we've been called to be faithful to, 
Lord, I pray that we, we would run the race well and continue faithfully in, in communicating and living out the gospel practically in our everyday lives. We thank you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first thing, it just as for note takers and whatnot, I would, uh, a title for the sermon, kind of the main point and focus of it, is just uh, stewardship of the saints. Stewardship is the idea of, of management, and we're going to be looking at what Paul, we, we just came out of the end of chapter 3 when Paul was talking about how we should view leaders in the church and some of the divisions that were being created over some of the, the divisions and factions that were being created. And now Paul is going to reflect on what we should think about our leaders and what we should even think about our own mission and our own calling within the body. So quick context, first thing that I think is important to recognize is this, the word this, the very first thing in chapter 4. Because no verse is suspended in midair, obviously, uh, there's always a verse above and below, there's a context with which it's placed, unless it's Genesis 1-1 or Revelation 22-21, but there's still things that come after and precede those. And we have to be careful in just pulling things out, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's a good reminder uh, of not doing that. It's funny, I was re- it, was a, it was one of those Christian calendars that had like little inspirational Bible verses down on the bottom, and it, it, it was one page, it had a quote from Luke 4, 7, it said, if thou wilt but worship me, I will give all this to you. It's a little less inspirational when you know who said it. That was Satan talking to Jesus, so I don't know who actually put that there, but it's important to understand the context of who's actually talking. So the, the antecedent, or the thing coming before that's giving meaning to what Paul is saying in this is everything Paul was just talking about in chapter 3 about idolizing leaders in the church or different people or connecting ourselves to uh, different leaders in the church or different popular philosophers during the time and, and some of the divisions. So Paul talks about what leaders should not be and that they are instead gifts given to the church, that they are, these are gifts that God has given the church. These are examples of God's grace that he has given, not something to be worshipped and idolized, but to uh, thank God for different teaching we've had, not to use it to lord it over one another, which is what the Corinthians were doing. And now Paul's going to examine how we should view leaders in the church and everything that we've been given. In, in our context, for Gospel Community Church, I would say this looks like the preachers, the cohort teachers, GCC leaders, the, the new down and dirty discipleship groups that we're launching in 2020, the, the, the people who are leading those groups, the people that are working in ministry throughout the church and the kids' ministry, setting up hospitality and all these things, that, that would be the leaders in, in our context that we're, uh, Paul's asking, how should we regard them? How should we consider them? In verse 1, Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, he's not using, the, the word he uses, servants here, is not diakonos, the Greek word that we use for deacons. He's not talking about a specific office, but he's saying that all leaders in the church, and in a sense, everybody, should be servants. That's how they should approach leadership, as, as an act of service and servitude. And if you have to wonder where did he get this model of leadership, it's clearly Jesus. The, Jesus even says in Mark 10, 44 through 45, in subtly, or subtly correcting the disciples, he says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came to be served, or came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So every, all of what Jesus did in his life, his ministry, was an act of sacrificial service to you. Life, death, resurrection, ascension, his intercessory work for us now, and his work in bringing about the obedience of faith amongst the nation is all in service to his people. So Paul takes Jesus as an example as to how to lead well, as an act of service, not lording it over one another, but out of a servant's heart, reflecting the love of Christ. And he also says, stewards. As I said before, a steward is just someone who's been placed in charge of something. You're, you're, you're managing something. If anybody's ever had a piece of property that they needed someone to manage or have a business that you hired somebody to manage it, this is kind of a very expensive thing for you. A home or a business, it has a lot of value. If you're going to place somebody in management over it, you would want them to manage it well. How much more God's overarching redemptive narrative that he's been telling throughout all of history, what God is all about, how much more do we be, need to be careful about the way in which we manage that? Something so much more precious than a home or a business. Keeping that in mind. He also says stewards of, and this is what we're, we're called to be careful managers of, in charge of, stewarding is the mysteries of God. And I have to pause and be careful with, with mysteries of God because some people might be confused. What, what is Paul talking about, the mysteries? What is this mystery that he's talking about? Because there was an ancient heresy in the first and second century known as Gnosticism. And it was this idea of obtaining some kind of secret knowledge through communication through divine beings, Jesus just being another one of those divine beings that could give you the secret knowledge. And that was the path to salvation is understanding all these secret things. But that is, that is so far from what Paul is talking about here. When he's saying mystery of God, he's, he's talking about the gospel. The mystery of God is the gospel. And I'm not just up here saying that. Paul says it himself. In Colossians 2, 2-3, I'll read you a couple passages to show uh, that the, this is what Paul is talking about. Colossians 2, 2-3, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, comma, which is Christ, comma. So he's inserting that, which is Christ. So the mystery of God is Christ. In Colossians 1, 25-26, he talks about the mystery again, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word, the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. When he's saying the mysteries of God, he's talking about the gospel. Yes, in times past, nobody fully saw or understood what God was doing through his plan of salvation. But now this has been revealed through Jesus Christ, who is the final revelation. So, mysteries of God, just so nobody's confused, like, what is this? Do I need to figure this out? Or is there secret numbers in the Bible or anything like that? No. It's super simple. Jesus came. He died for sinners. That is the mysteries of, the mysteries of God. So, we're called to be stewards of this. Carefully communicating it, living it, applying it, defending it. Look at verse 2. Paul says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And what's interesting about this, this is just as much applicable for every single person in the congregation as it is for the person that may be preaching or teaching in a cohort or giving any kind of instruction in the church. It's just as important for the listeners. There are no passive participants in the church. Our faithfulness and commitment to the gospel is a command for all of us to safeguard the gospel. And Paul fleshes this out in a couple places throughout the New Testament. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, especially, especially towards the end. 
He says, but I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is important right here. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, and the very last part of that, Paul gives the charge against those listening. He says, you put up with it readily enough. That there was a responsibility on the listener just as, and, and this is not to say that Paul doesn't hold those teaching and preaching, proclaiming the gospel accountable for what they say, absolutely. But he's also saying that you essentially put up with it just as much. 2 Timothy 4.3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So they're no longer longing for the gospel, longing to hear the word of God, but they're looking just to hear that they're, they're going to be happy and healthy and wise and that they're strong and beautiful and they can have all these things or, or whatever manifestation of a false gospel it could be, but they're attracted to that and pulling themselves in or, or they're grabbing their own teachers that are helping them feel better about themselves or different things like this. It's funny, I was just speaking with a uh, someone before we started about business, business school that I, that I went to before. It was, it was my first degree was business. And when Paul talks about the responsibility of every single believer in the church, it reminds me of supply and demand. It's kind of weird. But the only reason why stuff like pornography, sex trafficking, prostitution, abortion, all this stuff is so commonly practiced with so many people offering these services is because there's a huge demand for it. It wouldn't exist if there was no demand. If there was no demand for this kind of false teaching, this, these other gospels, these other Christs, then there wouldn't be so many people, so many people out there teaching it. So, there, so there's no passive observers on Sunday morning, but at times... We are called, called to hold people accountable to the gospel. This is not nitpicking, but it, it, it is a call to make sure that people are faithfully proclaiming it. Notice it says in verse 2, it says required of stewards that they be found faithful. And pride, by the way, shouldn't get in the way of this. Look at verse 3. Paul says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You know, it's not a big deal for Paul to be judged by the Corinthians because, number one, the gospel takes precedence over pride. Our own pride should be set aside for someone coming, you know, coming along and saying, I don't think that was a faithful communication of the gospel. It sounded almost like you were saying I needed to do this also to be saved, that it wasn't just faith in what Christ has done fully on my behalf, but it sounded like you were saying, yes, that's true, but also you need to do X, Y, Z and adding things on. It's okay to, be, to bring challenges to make sure that, that we are remaining faithful to the gospel. But also Paul says this because, I mean, Paul kind of takes it back to the gospel here too because really no one can condemn Paul. And that's just not Paul. That's technically, in a sense, all of us. Paul says this in Romans 8.1, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if you think about it, who ultimately sits in judge over us all? If you look at verse 4 at the end of it, Paul, Paul continues on, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. And at the end of verse 4, that second sentence, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Now, people often take that last sentence and Matthew 7, 1 out of context to mean that no one can judge us other than God. We've all probably heard that famous line from the Tupac song, only God can judge me. 
which is weird that he said that because he was he was sentenced to jail before that song came out, so somebody did judge him, and it had practical implications on his life. But um, Clearly, you can be judged. You can be judged by other people. And I, I, I'm assuming when people say that, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, and what they're saying is that, yes, ultimately when you die, God is the only judgment that matters. That's the one that sits over our lives. So I'm assuming when people, I'm, I'm just giving the benefit of the doubt, I'm assuming when people say that, they say, like, yes, God is the one who ultimately judges us. None of your judgments will matter on the day of judgment when I stand before God, but it will be his judgment that stands. For those that toss out that statement flippantly, though, that only God can judge me, that should terrify you. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I, I mentioned this, I think, back in November. I, may, I made a, an illusion, or I tried to create a, an analogy to kind of explain this. Our sin before a holy and perfect God, a righteous, holy, and perfect God. And I gave an example of, some, uh, of a movie like Good and Evil and stuff like that. But the truth is, God is perfect. God is good. He is holy. And we like to think of ourselves oftentimes as the hero and interject ourselves into stories. This is why superhero stories are so popular and why I think video games are so popular. Uh, because it's an opportunity for you to vicariously live through other people and be the hero of your own story. We like to think of ourselves as the good guy. Oftentimes, I, I've heard Rick say it many times that oftentimes our sin looks better on other people. We like to think of ourselves as a good guy, but the truth is we are the villain in the story. We're not the good guy. We're not even a neutral participant. We're actively rebelling against the creator who's been incredibly gracious to us in, in many, many ways. And Paul says that yes, it is the Lord who stands in judge over us all, ultimately at the end of all things. But he, he also says, before that, just backing up a little bit, still in verse 4, he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I, I, you know, I, I say God is, God is perfectly holy. And yes, we have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. There's a need for reconciliation. That's where the gospel comes in, that Christ has perfectly reconciled us to God. But it is not a license to be to be reckless with our faith, I guess, in a way. We have to remember that Paul is the same person who also said in Philippians 2.12 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Matthew 12.35, Jesus even says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Not that these things will save us, but there is, even in this passage, Paul is calling us to remain faithful to the gospel, a faithful and careful communication of it, and, and a careful dependence on it and staying within the gospel and not going beyond. He even talks as he moves on. I won't go to passage 6 yet, but if you look at passage 6, he talks about not going beyond what is written, and so he's calling them to remain faithful stewards of this gospel. But also, as Paul is talking about the judgment of God, one of the biggest problems with the Corinthians, when I talked about the rhetoric that they were doing, holding on to different teachers and saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, is oftentimes they were shutting other people out of the kingdom of God based on who they were following. You say you follow Paul, this guy. So that's what they were doing. And, and what's funny about that is, yes, they were doing it in the, in the first century of the church, but we still do this now. I, I was even, as I was... As I was studying this text, I, I kind of felt bad for Rick and, and pastors worldwide, especially when it comes to people who have been in the Christian faith for a long time. 
Because the longer you've been around, and this isn't a bad thing, it's just the longer you've been a Christian, the more preferences you develop. You've been to more churches, you've seen more worship styles. Even as you grow in your understanding of the Bible and your, and your theology, you understand different terms and understand different theological concepts. And I feel bad for pastors because I, I, I bet oftentimes people bring their preferences to them, oftentimes seeking to change a thousand different things. And if you can imagine uh, one person receiving so many different preferences all the time, shutting different people out of the kingdom for how they worship this way, and, you know, oh, you guys use drums? Okay. You know, it was that kind of thing that was going on inside the Corinthian church that they were attaching them, themselves. And Paul, in verse 5, he commands the Corinthians, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, he's taking the ball out of the Corinthians church and saying, hey, look, it is not for you to sit there and lord uh, salvation over other people. Salvation's through Christ. God is, God is ultimately sitting as judge, not you. Even, even when it comes to little secret sins, I would say what God has given us in the gospel is the grace and the freedom to give that same grace to other people. Now, and I'm not saying that we can never rebuke someone and that there's n never a call for church discipline, but there is, there is a real sense in which we, we have the freedom to be gracious with one another, that we don't sit as judge over one another holding the keys to salvation uh, over one person because uh, uh, even, I'm not Presbyterian, I don't baptize babies, you know, I, I disagree with them on mode of baptism, but they, I, can, I can call them my brothers in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we just have a disagreement there, but, and there's actually a there's a famous quote from the 16th century that I've heard many times, and it's relevant to this idea of shunning other people and shutting them out of the kingdom within the, own, within the Christian church. Uh, it was Rupertus Meldonius in the 16th century during the Thirty-Year War, and there, there was a lot of religious tensions going on in that war, but it was also political. But in response to some of the divisions that were being created in the church, it was kind of attacking one another, he said this, in essentials, Unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. I especially love the last part. In the essentials, absolutely. We want unity. There are, there are some things, my professor in Western Seminary, Gary Prashears, he talks about the four things, the die-fors, the divide-fors, the debate-fors, and the decide-fors. There are some things worthy of dying for. If the government were to come and tell me who God is, and, and that I'm no longer allowed to say the, the message of the gospel, and this is no longer something that is allowed to be preached, it's illegal, then I would absolutely agree that it's something that needs to be defied. I, I would be willing to die for that. That is an essential, I mean, the, the two biggest things that the cults always get wrong, the reason why we call them cults or heresies, is they get, who is God and how are we saved? The two most important things. And so, yes, in the essentials, there needs to be unity, but there can even still be charity. In the way we communicate the gospel, it's, we're commanded to do it in truth and love. Being gracious to those, meeting them where they're at, and understanding uh, what exactly their, their, uh, their understanding of, of Christianity is or the gospel and communicating it in a, in a winsome and loving way, even. In the non-essentials, liberty. To, to the brother that thinks, you know, I don't want to say specific things up here because then you know, I don't want to share my preferences because then people will feel like I'm shutting them out of the kingdom. But there are, I always say oftentimes that I have a very hard time calling something that the Bible doesn't explicitly say is a sin, a sin. If the Bible doesn't say it's a sin, I don't want to step beyond what God has already said. There are some things that are, 
There's sin for me to do. I can't, I can't do that thing. My conscience, as Paul talks about, I can't do that. That is sin for me. But I'm not going to sit there and hold another brother accountable to it when, when we're called to have uh, the freedom in the gospel to allow God to do that, not ourselves. So that's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do. And what I'm calling us to do, let's not kill each other over our preferences, basically. Or wear Rick out. Verse 6. <laughs> he says, I, he goes on, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. There it is again. Not to go beyond what is written in judging one another. Uh, some of you, have, most of us have probably heard the term legalism. Anybody? Is that, okay, I've seen a couple head nods. Okay, good. Legalism is the idea of like throwing extra things on top of salvation. Like, yes, it's grace, but uh, I really don't think, you know, I, I'm just picking something silly. This is an actual thing, but like, oh, you're wearing jeans to church? That's, whoo, sinner. You know, stuff like that. Like, you can't wear or X, Y, Z, you can't do this. That will actually stop you from being saved when the, God, when the Bible is absolutely silent on something. And we oftentimes do this in the Christian culture of the church, just throwing stuff on the gospel. Because, Paul continues in verse 6, he says, Don't go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Because this is what we do with our preferences. We tend to lord it over one another. Oh, you don't worship in this style. Oh, you don't do that. Paul is calling them back to the gospel, that, that Christian freedom in Christ. That we don't have to do all of these things in order to inherit salvation that is solely through Christ. Not all these different things that he's, he's conjuring up, that, that the Corinthians were conjuring up. And, and while that's true, there is also a call to Christian responsibility. Paul even says it, says it uh, in 1 Corinthians 10.23, you know, all things may be lawful, but all, not all things are beneficial or build up. With whatever we do, we want to make sure that we're not hindering people from the gospel, setting up barriers for people to come and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And speaking of that, um, we'll take the last verse here and, and close with the gospel. What's cool about verse 7 and, and this passage in light of the one we went through last week, 1 Corinthians I believe it was 10 through 20, or 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23. Last week, if you were here, we actually started with the gospel. Paul talked about how the gospel is a gift. And we talked about the difference between gift and grace. And the distinction between those two, especially come out of the Christmas season. And Paul also closes with this idea too. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything in this life is a gift from God. Everything. Even life itself, if you think about it. When we went through Genesis and we looked at Genesis 1-1, God creating everything, it, life itself has to be a gift. If you think about it even logically, what could you have done prior to your existence to have earned that? Nothing. There's nothing you could have done. So right off the bat, God starts with, here, gift. And then all throughout the Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, as we come into the New, even Rick talked about this a couple weeks ago as we were going through our series, Emmanuel, God with us, we see that it was a gift, that God didn't give the Israelites the law. They started obeying it. They were doing a pretty good job with keeping the commandments, and he said, okay, now I'll rescue you from the Egyptians. We see in the story that it was rescue, it was grace, 
It was him rescuing the Egyptians, and then he gave the commandments. He said, this is the way to live. This is how you can have life. Even his law itself was a gift to the people. He said that the other nations will look at Israel and say, how great a God is this that he has given them such, such a good law, the way they're living. If they would have remained consistent to it, the people around them would have said, wow, what an amazing God. He was giving them the way to life. So even in that, he was being gracious. All throughout the Old Testament, the same God, Old and New Testament, it was always, always grace. And then we have the gospel. As I said last week, the gift gift. Just so nobody got confused, Paul wanted to say the gift gift. It's really a gift. It's nothing to be earned or, or given. And so much more than we realize is a gift. Even, even in this passage, as Paul is exploring knowledge and, and ideas and different philosophies and worldviews that you guys are lording over one another, different theologians, that even knowledge itself is a gift. The gospel itself, what's funny about, if you read Romans 1, oftentimes the way God will judge a nation or even an individual person is by handing them over to their own way of thinking. He will say, you know, you're doing this, you're distorting the way I'm saying I will go ahead and let you continue in that. And that's actually God's judgment is letting them continue in their futility. The fact that God has even given us the knowledge of the gospel revealed the mysteries of God. That knowledge itself is actually a gift that he's given us. And this is what Paul is calling them to not do, to not boast in these things received from God. There's no, re- there's no reason... To, to boast or be prideful in all these things, oftentimes that, that's what stops us from being able to go and confess sins to one another. It's pride that gets in the way of that. That, that lack of confidence in Christ, that somehow we need to be a hero, and if I go and say this to someone, not, not that to go and say this to someone in order to, um, that somehow it will destroy my ministry or my life or my work or my relationship with this person. It's that pride and self and our need to be at the center of the story that stops us oftentimes from going and confessing and seeking healing. Not that, and I wanted, to, I wanted to clarify that, not that confession is what saves us. It's not that confessing our sins, but James talks about how that brings healing. But the thing that stops us oftentimes from receiving that healing is pride. And the gospel opens us up from, from that pride. And it's not just that Grace is necessary, that we needed God to do this thing so that we could be saved. Anybody in here who calls themselves a Christian, over the last 500 years, there's also another term that we've been given as Christians or that we've gone by. Anybody ever heard the word Protestant? That word Protestant, the word protest is in there. That's part of the root of that word. And the question is, well, what are we protesting against? Why why the word protest? Protestant. And what it was is we were protesting against the Roman Catholic Church because they said, what's interesting is part of their official dogma was that they said grace is, I mean, they agree on the Trinity. We can say yes, amen on the Trinity, but then they they go and say grace is necessary. And a lot of us would say, oh, that's a great thing. Grace is necessary. That's good. But that's a problem. It's not that grace is necessary. It's that grace is sufficient. It's not just something that gets us on God's good side and then it's up to us to maintain that through our obedience or different acts of service to the church or other people at Wild, but it's that the gospel is sufficient. Jesus tells this to Paul, that my grace is sufficient for you. On the cross, he says, it is 
finished. There's nothing to add on to this. And to think that you can is to blaspheme the cross. To say that what Jesus did wasn't enough. And that somehow you could outsin God, that you could outsin his grace, that there's something you could do in his life to reverse the effects of the cross. Instead, we have been fully purchased. All sins, past, present, future. That's not a call to live a life of licentiousness. And, and as I said before, recklessly with our faith, there is a call to be faithful. But these things, even our desire and our drive to remain obedient to God and share the gospel is not something that's going to get us into God's kingdom. We are here. We are children of God adopted into his family, loved and called beloved. I, I mentioned last week all the things given to us in Christ because we are now children of God. Grace is sufficient. There's no need to boast or go beyond what is written in order to lord it over one another and try to lift ourselves up as a hero. We have the freedom in Christ to rest secure in what Christ has done for us. Amen? Let's pray. God, everything I just said is not easy to do. I confess that even myself, and oftentimes I'm sure many of us, we let pride get in the way of us living the gospel consistently. We look to other things to find our confidence in. And, and it's burdensome. I pray that you would give us the freedom to rest in who we are as children of God, that we would live out that identity consistently. That we would begin to experience the peace in resting in what Christ has done instead of striving to earn something that's already been given to us, God. And help us remain faithful stewards of that mystery that you've now revealed in Christ. To the end of our days, God, I pray that we would constantly be drawing it back to the gospel. Every week, every gospel community group, God, let us not be a church of people going around giving good advice, but giving the good news that you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.